always. Continually, when he makes the statement, I have set the Lord always before me, he is making the statement that my focus is continually on the Lord. And then he gives a declaration when he says that, that he is right here with me. This is a declaration of victory. Somebody say victory. He said, I'm not declaring defeat, and I'm not magnifying problems because he is at my right hand. There's something powerful about being able to say, I've always got my eyes on the Lord, and I will make a declaration that he is with me. And then he brings it to that third and final conclusion when he makes the statement, I shall not be moved. Victory. Everybody say victory. This is a prayer of confidence. This is a prayer of declaration. This is a prayer of victory. I shall not be moved. Let's look at the whole song. And you see the words of David, and let's focus on them for a moment. Beginning at verse 1, David said, Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my Lord, my goodness extendeth not to thee. In other words, you're my God, and every good thing I have in life is a gift from you. But to the saints that are on the earth, and to the excellent, in whom is all my delight, their sorrow shall be multiplied that hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor make up or take up their names unto my lips. Or in other words, I am not going to participate with what everybody around me is doing. I've got my, are y'all with me? I've got my eyes on the Lord. I know my help comes from God. I know he's a good God, and I ain't going to get bogged down by all the junk that's going on around me in this life. My eyes are on the Lord. Lord. And then he goes on to say in verse 5, The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth my flesh also shall rest in hope thou wilt not leave my soul in hell neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption thou wilt show, show me the path of life in thy presence is fullness of joy at thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore I want you to note it. It was a psalm. It was a prayer, but it was a psalm of declaration. It starts out with this, I trust you, God. Do you say that over your life? Do you look heavenward and say, I trust you, God? Do you look upward and say, I put my confidence in you? I'm not looking around, but I'm looking up to where my help comes from. I trust you, God. God. And then he makes the declaration that you are my Lord. I want to stop here for a moment and remind somebody of this, that just because you go to a building that's labeled a church doesn't particularly mean that he is Lord of your life. When he is Lord of your life, that means that he is the most important thing of your life. It's not about attending service one day out of a week and devoting two hours out of all your hours 
hours of the week to being in the house of God. When you look heavenward and you say, I trust you, God, you are my Lord. That just simply means, God, you are number one in my life. And then he goes on to say, the Lord is my portion. He has given me a good heritage. I will bless the Lord who has guided me right. And then he makes that declaration of I will stay focused on the Lord. My heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh has hope. I will have victory. And then he says, you have made known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, and you give me the pleasure of being with you forever. If you're excited about living for God, why don't you just clap your hands right now to the Lord? It's a good life living for the Lord. But guys, I come to bring you a simple message this morning. And the message is just simply, get focused. The word focused means, it means clear. It means you can see clearly. The word focused also means fixed. It means having your mind fixed on something. It means attentive, intent, observant means not divided or scattered. The opposite of focused is foggy, unclear, preoccupied, oblivious, and even lost. Get focused. When he said that, when David said, I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. David is making a clear statement that my focus is on the Lord. And I realize that he is ever with me. And as a result of looking at him and knowing that he is with me, I shall not be moved. I'm going to give you three words to take home with you today. And the first one is vision. Each of these three words have to do with get focused. Plato. Who was Plato? I just look for quotes and don't even know who it is. Was he a, he's some philosopher, right? From ancient days. I borrowed his quote because it's good. Plato made this statement. He says, Conversion is not implanting eyes, for they exist already, but giving them direction, which they have not. Vision. We already have eyes, but the problem with some of our eyes is we don't have spiritual vision. There's a story, if you want to read it with me, in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 6, verse 8. And I know that most all of you in this room have heard this story before, but God poured it into my heart for this morning. And look at it. In 2 Kings, chapter 6, verse 8, the king of Syria warred against Israel and took counsel with his servants, saying, In such and such place shall be my camp. So the king of Syria is battling against Israel, and he's having a strategy for what they're going to do. And the next verse says, And the man of God sent unto the king of Israel, saying, Beware that thou pass not such a place, for thither the Syrians are come down. And the king of Israel sent to the place which the man of God told him and warned him of, and saved himself there, not once nor twice, or in other words, this just kept going on. 
that the king of Syria would make a strategy to come against the people of God, and the man of God would sabotage it by saying, okay, go to that spot because that's where they're going to try to ambush you. And everybody knows you can't ambush somebody if the person you're trying to ambush beats you to the place. And it's waiting on you. So therefore, the heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled, in verse 11, sub troubled for this thing, and he called his servants, and he said unto them, One of y'all is a spy. One of you is sharing secrets with Israel. Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants says, None, my lord. You don't have a spy in the camp. You don't have somebody that's trying to be a double agent here. You know what it is, king? It's Elisha. It's the man of God. It's the prophet of Israel. Because he tells the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy bedchamber. This is not in the war strategy room. This is even in your bedroom, king. You have no privacy. The Holy Ghost has bugged your house. And so he said, this is what we're going to do. He said, go and spy where he is, that I may send and fetch him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan, or Elisha is living down in Dothan. Therefore sent he thither horses and chariots and a great host, and they came by night and compassed the city about. So early the next morning, verse 15, when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, and host compassed the city, both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? Now keep that verse right there so you can look at it. I want you to notice that this is a report. Everybody say a report. The servant goes out early in the morning and he looks and with his natural eyes, he sees that the Syrian army have surrounded the city that they're in. In other words, the report is we have opposition. The report is we have a great big issue. We have an insurmountable problem. The report is there are a lot of chariots, a lot of horses, a lot of weapons, a lot of soldiers. The Bible just summed it up as a great host. You know when this happened? I hope y'all are hearing me because this happened in the nighttime. I want you to know that the nighttime brought for them a nightmare or it looked like a nightmare. The night had delivered to them this incredible Problem. I want to tell somebody spiritually something right now that sometimes the dark times of our life seem to deliver to us something that seems insurmountable. Are y'all with me right now? Sometimes the dark times of our life delivers to us something that is not friendly and it looks like it's not going to be overcome. They went to bed that evening, woke up the next morning, and the nighttime had delivered to them a major problem. That's the report. And this was the reaction. The reaction from the servant was, Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? You see, the report was the reality that was in front of them of what the nighttime had delivered them. And the reaction was very human. 
And I know I'm talking to humans, and I know that I am a human. And I know sometimes humans have a tendency of looking at the thing that is in front of them and having a struggle with kind of getting their head wrapped around everything that is going on. And the reaction of the servant was very human. Oh, Lord. Oh, no, my Lord. What shall we do? He had eyes to see the problem, but he had no answer. He assessed the problem, but he had no solution. He was trying to process all that was going on, and it overwhelmed him. His natural sight gave a very natural report, and the natural report led to a very human reaction. And that's where a lot of us are stuck. A lot of us see what's facing us and the obstacle that is surrounding us. And a lot of us see everything that is going on. And the reality of it is that it is reality. It's a human reality. But to this report, and I hope y'all are with me right now, to this report, the man of God was about to make a spiritual declaration. And he said this in 2 Kings 6.16, he answered, he said, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. He made a declaration of the spiritual reality. There's the human reality. There's the natural reality. But here's the spiritual reality. They that be with us are more than they that be with them. But sometimes we stop there. We either stop assessing when we're looking at the problem and we get stumped by it and we just think it's over overwhelming and there's nothing that can happen and we stop there. Or we can speak or hear a word of faith in this situation. He heard a word of faith and we can hear a word of faith and stop there. But that's not where the story stops and that's not where God wants us to land today. God wants us to go on to that next step. Elisha prayed not that God would give him eyes because he already had eyes. He prayed that God would give him sight. And in 2 Kings 6, 16, Elisha prayed. And he said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha and I want you to know the report was still there the enemy was still there I want you to know the declaration had been made but the declaration had to be taken one step further and that was God give him eyes that he can see the reality of the declaration and when you see the greatness of God everything else begins to diminish I'm talking to some people in this room this morning that you know the Word of God. You know it. You've heard it. You've even quoted it. But we need to take it a step further this morning. We need to take it just a little bit further. We need to take it to a point of saying, God, I've heard your word. God, I believe your word. But God, I pray that you would give me eyes so that I can have spiritual vision, that I can be able to see the reality of the fact that they that be with us are more than they that be with them. That's why David would say, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved everybody say vision the second thing is focus everybody say focus having your sight having your vision 
but also having your mind fixed. Hebrews 12, 1, the writer of Hebrews says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. That's focused, y'all. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, despising, before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Focused on Jesus. He said, looking unto Jesus. That means attentively focused. That means we're seeking him. And that means we keep focusing on him. I want to tell you this, and God put this in my heart, and I believe this. I really believe that those who keep looking unto Jesus will soon start looking like Jesus. Those who keep their focus on him. As David said, he keeps, he's there in front of me. I keep him ever before me. I keep my eyes on him. I've set the Lord always before me. When we're looking unto Jesus, we're soon going to start looking like Jesus. And what the world needs now is not a, another group of people that goes to church on Sunday morning. There's a lot of them. What we need is a lot of people that are beginning to reflect the reality of Jesus. This world needs what Jesus has to offer. <laughs> Moses, the man of God, went on to Sinai, went on the Mount Sinai, and he had asked the Lord, he said, Lord, show me your glory. He was seeking God's glory. He wanted to know God in a greater way, a deeper way, a revelation of God. He was after a revelation. That's what he was, what it was for. And in Exodus chapter 33, you find that. He said, show me your glory. He's, he's finding God's revelation. And when he did, when God revealed himself unto him, Moses came down from the mountain having been changed. His face was glowing from the encounter of being on the mountain with God. And the people couldn't look on him. And they put a veil over his face, the Bible says. They couldn't look upon him because of that glow. I believe it was because they couldn't handle the effects of the revelation of God. Not everybody around you is going to be a cheerleader as you pursue God. Somebody hear me right now. Not everybody around you is going to be on the same page with you, but that should not stop you from pursuing God for yourself. Come on, I'm talking to somebody in this room this morning. It doesn't matter if you've got a deadbeat spouse or ding-dong children. It doesn't matter if your employer or your employer is a pain in the neck. It doesn't matter if you work for Satan himself. There's, if you make up your mind that I'm going to pursue after the things of God, you don't have to have people on the same page with you. You don't have to be in sync with anybody. I want God. I want the things of God. And they couldn't handle the revelation of God, and so they put a veil over his face. And Paul writes to us in 2 Corinthians, and he talks about even to this day, they continue to do that with putting a veil over their hearts because they do not want to handle the glory or the revelation of Jesus Christ. And pick up on what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14. He says, their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. 
Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord. In other words, I've seen him. I've seen his revelation. I've seen the Lord Jesus Christ. And this glory has, has, has done something in my life. And what I have had revealed to me, it is transforming my life to the point that what I have had revealed to me is going to be revealed through me. What I have seen is going to be seen in my life. You can't look upon Jesus and it not bring a change. And when that change happens, people begin to see see Jesus in you. I believe that the more you look unto Jesus, the more you're going to start looking like Jesus. And that ought to be your goal. My focus, Lord, is to reveal you. God honors those who honor him, and God reveals himself to those who yearn for him. The psalmist said in Psalm 40, 42 and verse 1, verse 2, he said, As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? One of the greatest issues that you and I as Christian believers face, one of the greatest issues, and let's be honest with ourselves this morning, one of our greatest problems is complacency. You see, the man who believes that he has arrived will go no further. And it's a snare to believe that we have arrived when we have not. And let me go on a little bit further and say it's dangerous to quote Scripture or to quote a text and have no inward experience of it. It becomes a bludgeoning tool. If you just know Scripture, but you have no experience of it, it's dangerous. You see, truth that is not experienced is actually no better than error. It's more than just quoting a truth. Come on, are y'all understanding what I'm saying? It's more than just quoting Scripture. It's knowing the truth of that word in an experiential way. Truth that is not experienced is no better than error, and it may be just as dangerous. When you look at the scribes in the Scripture and those who gave Jesus a hard time and those who, who uh, Paul referred to in 2 Corinthians 3 that I just read to you, the scribes in Scripture who studied Moses, they were not victims of error. They were victims of their failure to experience the truth that they taught. They taught the truth, but they did not experience that truth. So they were victims of their failure to experience the truth that they taught. 
my heart desire and it pulsates with everything within my being. I don't want to get up here and just preach to y'all. I want us to have a living relationship with Jesus Christ. I want you to know that you know that you know it's not just a word that you've grabbed hold of. It's a word that's penetrated deep down in your heart and it's like something like fire that shut up in your bones. There's a reality to this. You see, Jesus is not a scripture. He's the Savior. And Jesus is not a religion. He's a living relationship. And truth is more than dogma. Truth makes us free. Everybody say vision. Everybody say focus. And the last and final thing is direction. Everybody say direction. Direction matters. A lot of people have good intentions. And it's good to have good intentions because that's a whole lot better than bad intentions. But it's more than intentions only. We need direction. What we intend to do and what we set out to do are two different things. The word direction just simply is the course or path on which something is pointing or moving. Anytime we think of the word direction, we think of the, the direct or the way we're going, but we also think of movement. Intention simply means what one intends to do. There's a simple story in Scripture that Jesus taught that gives us both intention and direction, and I'm going to start tying this together with this. I love this passage. I love this story in Luke chapter 15. Jesus said, a certain man had two sons, beginning at verse 11. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, and he took his journey into a far country, and he wasted his substance there on riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him unto his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my fathers have bread enough and to spare, and I perish from hunger with hunger? I will arise and go to my father. That's his intention. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. That's the first pivotal point of the story. After he came to himself, he had an understanding of how crazy this was, and it didn't have to be this way. He expressed his intention by saying, I will arise and I will go to my father. And I'm going to say, Father, I'm no more worthy to be called thy son and make me just one of your hired servants. And then verse 20, you find he set off in that direction that was going to cause things to change. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and I'm no more worthy in, in, in thy sight, and I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. 
the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatty calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. He expressed his intention while he was still at the hog pen when he said, I will arise and go. That was his intention. But his intention led to him going in the right direction. He set his face toward the father's house. And he arose, in verse 20, and came to his father. And it's worth noting that intention and direction led to destination. When we decide where we're going, and let that decision determine our direction, and we move in that direction, we will achieve our destination. The wanderer is going to keep wandering, and the vagabond is going to keep drifting, but the pilgrim pursues. And you and I are not wanderers. Are y'all with me right now? You and I are not wanderers, and you and I are not vagabonds. We're pilgrims. And a pilgrim has something that he's heading toward. The pilgrim pursues. There's an old song that says, I am just a weary pilgrim traveling through this world of sin, getting ready for that meeting. Do you all know the rest of it? When the saints go marching in. There's coming a day that you and I are going to see the culmination of what our direction has been. I'm here to tell somebody this morning, it's time to get focused. It's time to stay focused. It's time to get vision. It's time to get focus. It's time to get direction. Poke your neighbor and say, get focused. Let's close with this. In Psalm 86 and verse 10. In Psalm 86 verse 10, four short verses is a powerful declaration. The psalmist says, For thou art great and doest wondrous things. Thou art God alone. You're a great God. Can you say that with me? You're a great God. God, you're great and you do great things. And God, you're God all by yourself. But then that led to this. He said, Teach me thy way, O Lord. And I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. I will praise thee, O Lord, my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify thy name forevermore. For great is thy mercy toward me, and thou hast delivered my soul from the lowest hell. In those four verses, it's so true. It's a reality that God is great. God does great things, and he is God all by himself. But then how does that connect with us? In that verse, in verse 11, it, it, it's so simple. He said, teach me thy way, O Lord. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 25, in verse 4, he said, show me thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. In 1 John, John tells us in 1 John 2, 27 that the anointing of the Holy Ghost is going to teach you all things. He said, God, teach me thy way, O Lord. We know best the ways of God when we are taught by God. 
And he said, Lord, if you'll teach me your ways, I will walk in thy truth. Psalm 26 and 3, the psalmist says, For thy loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in thy faith. In John 16, Jesus said, He is the Spirit of truth, and he will lead and guide you into all truth. He is the Spirit of truth. But the psalmist concluded, and this is what I want to stop with, y'all, and I want you to hear it. He said, unite my heart to fear thy name. Have you ever asked God, have you ever asked God to unite your heart? The double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, James said in James 1.8. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they are the ones that are going to see God in Matthew 5.8. Jesus said in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things shall be added unto you. The psalmist is saying, God, bring my heart into unity that it may be wholly fixed on you. I've been married for 36 years, 3 months, 14 days, and 15 hours. That's close. My wife is my favorite person in the world. Her and I did a marriage seminar, or part of a marriage seminar, marriage retreat, the past couple of days, and reminded of the fact that we are far better husbands if we love Him first and foremost. We're reminded of the fact that we're far better fathers. We're far better sons. We're far better employees or employers if we love him first and foremost. When he says, love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, lean not to thine own understanding, or trust in the Lord with all thine heart, lean not to thine own understanding. And when he tells his people, this needs to be constantly repeated. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength. He knows what he's trying to pour into us because he knows if we've got this the way it should be, that this is going to be the way it ought to be. And some, I feel the Holy Ghost pushing me right now because some of y'all that I'm talking to this morning have chaos and disarray in your life that doesn't have to last any longer than these next few minutes. Because when we have a united heart with God, when this is right, all this other stuff just seems to kind of fall into place in the way that it ought to be. I'm not making this up as I go along. This is a scriptural principle that's been around far before any of us got here, and it'll be here long after we're all gone. Jesus was clear when he says, you seek the rule of God first in your life, and all these other things are going to be added unto you. And when the psalmist said, unite my heart, 
He gave us something that every single person in this room ought to be praying before this day is over. Unite my heart. God, I don't want to have something out of whack. I don't want this affection to be above my desire for you. I don't want this yearning and longing to be above where you ought to be in my life. God, I want to have a united heart that my life would bring reverence to you. Would you just stand together right now and reach your hands with your heart to the Lord? Come on, all over this room. The Holy Ghost is here right now. The Spirit of the Lord wants to minister to somebody in this place today. God's saying, I've sent you a simple word. It's a simple message. Get focused. Come on, get focused. God wants us to have clarity of vision. God wants us to have focus. God wants us to have direction. But we need to pray the prayer, and we need to turn our thoughts toward the Lord, and we need to say, God, give me a united heart. Give me a united heart. Give me a united heart. Our ministry team is ready to pray with anybody in this room that wants to begin coming down here to the front and just call upon the Lord. Or if you want to pray just in your own way, you want to pray personally and privately, we'll let you do that on your own. But if you want to come down to the front, I wonder if there's anybody that wants to come and fill this altar and say, God, I want my heart, I want it to be united. Come on, the Spirit of God is pulling somebody in this room this morning. God, give me a united heart that I can fear your name, that I can bring reverence and honor to you. Come on, why don't you allow the Spirit of God to just do some things for you in this place today. Saints, why don't we get out and let's move around to the front. Let's close this out here around the front today. God has given us a time to be refocused. A time to get direction, vision, focus, laying some things down, walking off from some things, and receiving from God that which only He can give. In Jesus' name. Come on, ministers, begin moving around and let's pray. Let's begin praying around this room. Let's pray with each other. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Jesus. To feel the warmth of your grace. Help me find a way. Bring me back to you.
you to hear me for just one moment I know there's people here battling things in your mind today that the enemy says it's an impossibility my situation can't ever change it can't ever get better it's just always going to be this way but let me tell you this morning that the devil is a liar and I want to share something from my own personal life okay I don't get up here and do this very often but when I was a young man, before I gave my life to the Lord, it's been many years ago, many of you remember it, I battled those very same thoughts in my own mind. You see, when I was just a teenager, I did a lot of stuff I'm ashamed of, but when I was a teenager, I, 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 I got involved with LSD usage, and it messed my mind up in a way that there's no way, no way I was ever going to be normal again as far as my mental health and emotional health went. I'm telling you, I would have never, ever, it was absolutely impossible. I would have never been healed from that. I would have never, ever got over that. And the only thing that kept me from taking my life, I was so miserable when I would wake up in the morning. The only thing that kept me from taking my life was the belief in heaven and hell. That was the only thing that kept me from harming myself. But the Lord, now God does require one thing, really two things of us. He requires two things. Number one, he does require faith. We have to believe. I know those thoughts come into our minds and they say, God can't help me. This can't ever get any better. But I want you to know that is a lie. The Word of God tells us He's a deliverer. He's a healer. He's a Savior. And His Spirit, let me tell you, His Spirit and His presence, it's a healing presence. He's Jehovah Rapha. He's the Lord our God who heals. And He can come into your heart and mind and bring a healing presence that will bring peace, that will bring joy, that will lift you up out of the, the bondage and the, the break the strongholds in your mind that's holding you back. But the two things he requires is number one, faith, and number two, to come to him and surrender. And I want you to know today, there's people all over this room, you're battling all sort of different things, but if you'll just step out in faith to him and surrender and say, Lord, here I am, and I call on you. And I want to tell you this, don't, it can happen this way or it may not. You know what? 
when I first did that, my healing and deliverance didn't come instantaneously all at one time. It came in steps and in stages. God can do it any way he wants to do it. But I will promise you on the authority of the word of God and by my own personal experience that God will help you and deliver you if you'll just reach out to him. He is the helper. Let's sing it again and let's worship one more time before we go home today. Who am I that the highest king would welcome Just lift your hands and reach out to him wherever you I are today. Lost, but he reach out to him and call on him. He loved for Shall be impossible. 